One foot on the boat, the other on the dock, that is not fun. That can be dangerous. Middle of the road, the best of both worlds, though all those phrases kind of mean the same thing. So it got me thinking, is it possible for us, uh, is, it such thing, or is there such a thing as the best of both worlds? Can we really ride the fence? Can we live in the middle of the road? I drive all over the state of New Mexico as part of the responsibilities that I have as your state missionary at the Baptist Convention of New Mexico. And I see a lot of things in the middle of the road, and none of them look good or alive. So it is not a good place to be. So as followers of Jesus, we have to make up our minds. We have to choose whether we will go the way of the world or the way of the Lord. We've got to choose a side. We cannot live with devoid, uh, sorry, divided loyalties. If you go and look in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 30, you don't have to do that now. Maybe write it down and go back and look at it later. But Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 20, is a series of farewell speeches that Moses made as he was ending his time as leading the children of Israel. And part of what he reveals to them or reminds them is that they have to make a choice. And this choice for them is a matter of life and death. The way of death is obviously to ignore God, and the way of life is to follow God and do as He commands and, and sell out completely to following Him wherever He leads us. So that brings us to where I want to spend a little time this morning. In 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 15. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. John writes, do not love the world or the things in the world. If, any, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world, with its lust, is passing away. But the one who does the will of God remains forever. So what does John mean by this phrase, do not love the world? Well, let's consider, first of all, what he doesn't mean. John doesn't mean that we cannot love the world of nature, God's creation. It's beautiful, and he, he, he created it and gave it to us as a gift for us to enjoy and also as a way to provide resources for us to have food and all things like that. In fact, Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of His hands. Creation is a testimony to the majestic creative genius of God. It's a testimony of what He's done. And so we should and we can praise the Lord for what He's given us and the beauty of, as I said, I travel all over the state of New Mexico. And one of the things, one of my favorite things about New Mexico is the, the, the vast variety of beauty that we have in our state. Even in southeastern New Mexico, you can find something beautiful here if the sun is shining, unlike it is today. So John isn't telling us that we shouldn't love creation or love the world, that part of the world, when he says that. John is also not telling us that we're not to love our fellow humans. This is obvious because if we just think about it for a second, we remember that God loves all people. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God loves the world. He loves all people. It's, it's what he's trying to get across to us is that we are not to love what the world loves in that those things that leave God out of our lives 
or that live in opposition to him. That's the world that we're not to love. That's, it's a philosophy. It's a, it's a way of life that he's talking, that John is talking about. The world can take those good things, those, those neutral things. The world takes those things sometimes and makes them seem so great that we soon forget that they were a gift from God and we worship the creation rather than worshiping the creator. The problem that we have is that this world that we live in is under the control of the evil one. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, it says, We know that we are of God, and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. He, he has influence in our world. And, and in some folks, he has a very powerful influence. The, the principles that the devil has, or that he pushes off on people, or tries to influence people, they're having a profound impact on our world. And there are way too many of us, even, who follow Christ, that are swayed a little bit too much by his influence. He is crafty, and he's trying to destroy us. You know, I think part of the reason that we, we forget about this is that we have this kind of cartoony image of the devil. We've kind of painted this picture that he's this skinny guy with a black goatee wearing long underwear, red long underwear with a, with a pointy tail and a pitchfork. Now, that doesn't sound like anybody that's intimidating or scary or anything like that, does it? But if you look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, and listen carefully to what he writes there, he says, Be sober. Be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a lion looking for anyone he can devour. That sounds pretty serious to me. That's not a cartoony image of the enemy. So when we put selfish pleasure or the things that we own or the things that we want to own or power or anything else above God, we are showing that we love the world and are indeed living by the principles of the evil one. Anytime we elevate anything above God, we're showing that we're being influenced by the enemy. Now sometimes it's not a conscious decision. It can happen gradually or slowly or subtly. It happens when we let our guard down. It happens in a moment of weakness. That's why Peter gives us such a warning. A strong warning. Be sober. Be alert. Pay attention. Because the devil is crafty. We have to make sure that we do not allow the world to squeeze us into its mold. In fact, one translation, the Phillips translation of Romans chapter 12, verse 2, even says it that way. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. Anybody here ever play with Play-Doh or clay? Yeah, it's fun, isn't it? One of the best things about it is you can mold it and shape it into anything you want it to be. Right? That's fun. And then if it's not good, you just mash it up and start all over again. Or when you're done, then you pretend like you're Godzilla and stomp on everything and then mash it all up and start all over again. Right? It's, it's a lot of fun. The other thing about Play-Doh is not only can you mold it and shape it into what you want it to be, but you can press things into it and make an impression in it. Well, you're not really turning the clay into that, that thing that you're making, that bowl or that cup or that uh, transformer or whatever you're making out of the clay. It can also be impressed upon if you just press something in it, like a cookie cutter or something like that. So it doesn't have to be completely remolded in shape. It can be impressed upon. 
The devil can do that in our lives if we're not careful. We can allow him to have an impression, make an impression in us and have a little bit of an influence in us where even something that might sound good or might even be good is, is just slightly twisted because it takes our attention off of God. Because the truth is, the, 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 the way of the world sounds good. It sounds fun. It sounds exciting. We have to be honest and admit that, right? We see others out in the world having all this fun and excitement, or at least that's our perception of what we see them having. And we say to ourselves, well, I want to have some fun too. I get a little irritated when I hear people, when they're talking about the gospel, and they talk about Jesus, and they say, come follow Jesus. We get to have fun too. <laughs> I kind of understand what they're trying to say, but that's not the right approach. We don't live to have fun. If we follow Jesus, we live to bring glory and honor to God. Now, if we have a little fun along the way, that's, that's okay. And God, God came, Jesus says, I came that they might have life and have it to the fullest. And he's talking about life here on earth, that, that we would have good experiences and fun and excitement and joy. Absolutely. But I am afraid that what we have done is we have turned those kind of things into a little bit of an idol. I'm not happy or I'm not having fun and so I'm out. And sometimes, folks, we got to work through that stuff. Sometimes what we do, how we serve as we're serving the kingdom, it's, it's not fun. It's hard work. But we get a little jealous. You know, when I go to restaurants, my wife teases me all the time about this. But I take a little poll, especially if it's a little crowd, you know, like a, a small crowd of us at a restaurant. And what are you going to order? What are you going to order? Or if we've already ordered, what did you get? What did you get? And, and then I, you know, I, finally, I finally make my decision because I'm going back and forth between something, maybe one or two, three things. And then when the food comes out, the first plate that gets delivered, if it's not mine, whatever it is across the table, oh, I should have ordered that. Oh, that looks good. I should have ordered that. And I'm not satisfied with what, what I ordered. <laughs> Brenda always says, just eat your food. You can't have my french fries. But we, we get a little jealous when we, when we forget where our area of focus is supposed to be. And it's not on ourselves and our own pleasure. It's on the kingdom. The devil knows how to trick us. He is very crafty and we are extremely gullible. Extremely. Second Corinthians eleven, chapter fourteen, verse or, sorry, chapter eleven, verse fourteen says the devil is disguised as an angel of light. He's tricky. It's tough. You gotta pay attention. Again, that's why Peter says, Be alert, be sober. Solomon gives us a great warning in, in Ecclesiastes chapter eleven, verse nine. It's written, he's warning young people, but really can be applied to, to anybody, no matter what stage of life you find yourself. But he says, Rejoice, young person, while you are young, and let your heart be glad in the days of your youth, and walk in the ways of your heart and in the desire of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you to judgment. That's, that's true for all of us, no matter what our age is. In other words, we will answer to God for every single thing that we do or say or think. In Galatians chapter 6, very, very familiar verse, a couple of verses of Scripture. You've probably heard it before. Maybe some of you even have it memorized. But in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, 
my pages are sticking together. Sorry about that. Galatians 6, 7 and 8. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap, because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. You know that sowing is planting. That's another. That's a fancy term for planting, right? And reaping is a fancy term for harvesting. So whatever you plant is what you harvest. You get out what you plant. If you plant tomatoes, you get tomatoes. If you plant peaches, you get peaches. If you plant rebellion, you suffer the consequences of ignoring God and being disobedient to God. There are serious consequences for choosing to follow the way of the world as opposed to following the way of Christ. We often refer to this idea of loving the world as worldliness. If we follow Christ, we must uh, be more concerned about living a life of godliness as opposed to worldliness. What are the characteristics of the world? John gives us a description here. Look back at John, uh, 1 John chapter 2, look at verse 16 again. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And that's not, obviously that's not an exhaustive list, but John gives us a pretty good, these are pretty good generalities. A lot of things can fall in that category. But what he's describing is those things that we long for. Not just something that we're interested in having. Because it's, it's part of the devil's plan to entice us with the things that we crave or the things that we long for. He used that same technique in the Garden of Eden, didn't he? When he was talking to, talking to Eve and he deceived her. And he also used, tried to use that same, well he did use the same technique. But he didn't have the success that he had with Adam and Eve with Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. He was appealing to those things that a human might long for. Jesus was able to resist that. John describes things. He says the lust of the flesh. Some of the translations may say the cravings of sinful man. Either way, the point is exactly the same. It's Our senses lead us to desire what we cannot or should not have. Or we take something good like food or sex and we make it the most important thing in our lives. You know, there's another word for that. Idolatry. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. James writes these words, No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. It is something that comes from within us. It's part of our natural state as fallen humans because of what happened in the garden. And we need to rely on that supernatural transformational power of God working in our lives to change us and mold us and, and shape us into what He wants us to be. But that's, that means that there's a constant battle going on in our hearts and in our minds for those things that we think that we want or those things that we long for as opposed to those things that God wants for us that we really should be longing for those when we recognize that that's way better. That's a better plan for us comes from within us. John 
Also, he talks about, as he's talking about the lust of the flesh, what he means by that phrase is the, 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 the well, most of the time we equate that with, with like sexual lust, sexual sin, and that's certainly part of it. But actually, and I think you guys are smart enough to know this, but we can crave or lust after anything. Power, popularity, excitement, getting our own way, having stuff. You can basically just think of it, what John is telling us here is as a desire, a very strong desire to have. Rather than loving God, we're more concerned with our own comfort and our own pleasure. And sometimes we make those things our God with a little g. In Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, Paul writes, The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We've got to live and think and breathe in the Spirit as He leads us and as He takes care of us and as He convicts us and as He molds us and shapes us into what He wants us to be. Now, remember, please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that pleasure and possessions are are necessarily evil in and of themselves. They just become dangerous when we put way too much emphasis, when they draw our attention away from God, when we settle for what seems to be good instead of for what's best. And what God has for us is always best. The next thing as we continue in 1 John that we see, the lust of the eyes or the craving of the eyes. The enemy wants to take us away from our devotion to Christ. And he does this by tempting us with the things that are attractive to us. We've already sort of touched on this idea, but he's, John is adding this to the discussion. Things that we like to see. He knows that our eyes are never satisfied. He knows that we always want more. We always got to have more. Proverbs 27, verse 20 says, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, and the people's eyes are never satisfied. Sheol is basically a Hebrew word that can either mean the grave or the realm of the dead. Abaddon is also uh, either is a word that means the grave or the realm of the dead. In other words, the writer of that proverb is telling us that, that just as the grave is never satisfied, always wanting more dead people, that's what the grave wants. Our eyes are never satisfied. My dad used to tell a joke. Hey, Sam, you know why there's a fence around the graveyard? No, Dad, because people are dying to get in. Feel free to tell that to your families. It's a great joke. I can tell by your reaction it's a horrible joke. But our eyes are never satisfied. Ever been to an all-you-can-eat buffet? Oh, no, but you don't be lying to me in church. We all have, haven't we? You guys, we're going to have like a, a, a potluck. Which that always makes me nervous. Potluck, I don't know what that means. But anyway, you guys are going to have dinner, right? Don't take more than you can eat. Our eyes are never satisfied. I learned that lesson the hard way. When I was younger and I could eat a lot of food, we'd have a little contest. You know, fill up their plates the most and eat the most of it. One time I won, and then that was, I'm not ever doing that again. It seems to me, at least for me personally, my eyes are always bigger than my stomach. And so I really have to, I try to avoid all-you-can-eat buffet places because I just get myself in trouble. It's hard enough just to eat the portions at a regular place. Part of it is that we haven't learned contentment. 
We haven't found fulfillment. And we're looking for it in all these other things. But, but folks, the only place we can find contentment and fulfillment is through Christ. The only, that's the only place we're ever going to be truly satisfied. So John then moves from this lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes to this idea of boasting or having pride in one's lifestyle or boasting what one has or has and does, as another translation says. This, the, what John is talking about is this prideful attitude that can lead us to feel that we're better than other people. And we might not come right out and say that, but we behave that way sometimes, don't we? I'm just humble enough to not tell you that I'm better than you, but I think I'm better than you. If you go out on this in the parking lot and look at my car, there is a 13.1 sticker on the back of my car. My brother-in-law asked me, is that like your favorite Bible verse? Or I'm like, no, man, that is straight up bragging right there. That's a, that's a 13.1 is the distance of a half marathon. I've run several half marathons, and so I'm... I'm bragging. I'm showing. I'm proud of that. It's, I earned that sticker. But then I got to thinking, maybe I should take it off because I'm kind of being prideful. But then I got to thinking, well, I'm not. I'm just. I'm just proud of my accomplishment. I'm not saying you can't do it. So that's okay. When you run a 13.1, call me. I'll send you a sticker. Or if you want 3.1, Matt, I'll send you a sticker. Okay. Matt used to make me mad because he called a mini marathon. No, that was Daniel Snow that called a mini. Never mind. I take it back, Matt. I'm not mad at you anymore. Okay. <laughs> but this, what, what John is talking about, it's much more than just taking pleasure in the abilities that God has given us. It's the attitude that, uh, that assumes that I am better than other people because I am able to do this or that. All sin is a big deal to the Lord, but pride I think is a bigger sin because pride is like the root sin of all the other sin. We're so prideful and we don't feel like we need any help or guidance from the Lord in certain things. Again, we would never say that out loud, but folks, we live that way. And so this warning that John gives us to avoid loving the world and to love only God, it's for our own good. We cannot love both. Loving the world shows that we really don't love God as much as we say we do, or maybe we need to grow in our depth of love for Him. But not only that, it's, it's a complete waste of time. Look at verse 17 in 1 John. And the world with its lust is passing away. It's passing away. It's not going to last. Think, think about the folks on the Titanic. Now, if we... If we because we know the story. We know what happens. If somebody were to offer us a ticket on the Titanic, we'd say, no thanks. I cannot tread water for that long. But those poor people had no idea what was facing them, what, was, what they were about to face. According to them, it was a ticket to get across the Atlantic and enjoy America. We have the benefit of the scriptures to understand that the world's way is not the right way for us to go. That God has set up a better way, the best way for us, and he's lined it out in the scriptures for us. He's put it in there for us as, as guidance and as direction and even as a warning. This is like our ticket to keep us 
from being sunk. Everything that we see here is it's all temporary. Loving God, devoting ourselves to com- uh, uh, completely to Him is, is time invested in something that will last forever. And the ministry that we do in the name of the Lord is not to get a pat on the back, but it's investing in something that's going to last forever, that it doesn't pass like all this other stuff that we have around us. We can sum up the whole thing in in this way. One theologian put it this way, and I quote, Do not embrace the world's ways or or goods. When you do, it squeezes out your love for God. When you live for getting your own way and for getting everything you want and for looking good compared to others, you're not living for God but for the world. This is foolish because it suffocates your relationship with God, and in the end, it will all go up in smoke anyway. So it's time that we recognize that we can only be truly satisfied and find fulfillment through our relationship with Christ. It's time that we acknowledge that only God is good and that following Him is always best. It might not always be fun, but it is always best. Besides, we're not living just for fun anyway, right? There is no greater place for us to find satisfaction and contentment than in the Lord. We, we want to live in the middle of His goodness and we are fully satisfied in Him regardless of our circumstances. And in that is where He receives a great amount of glory. Because people see us and they see what satisfies us. And it's different than what other people are thinking is satisfying them. And they say, why are you... Why are you like that? And we point to God and we say, because God is working in my life and he's, he's changing me and he's transforming my heart and I care about different things now. And it provides an opportunity for us to perhaps share the gospel with them as well. The world and its philosophies are under the influence of the devil and, and the, they, it stands against all that is good. It stands in total opposition to the Lord. So therefore, as followers, we need to make sure that we are not in that category. We have a different philosophy. There is no such thing as the best of both worlds. No such thing. We cannot have divided loyalties. Our devotion should be pure, undivided, singly focused, and without distraction or without alloy. It is time for us to get out of the middle of the road that we will love God and not the world. And then I think we will be able to see more and more movement of God right where we are as we love him more and and the world less. May we grow to the point where we don't even love the things of the world at all. Will you bow with me as we pray? Father, I want to thank you so much for this opportunity to be here in this place today. I want to thank you, Lord, for the Scripture, for the truth of the Scripture and what you teach us. And Lord, it would have been so easy for you you to just create us, create all this stuff, and then just leave us here to live on our own.